Hello, and welcome to another edition of Your Therapist Needs Therapy, the podcast where mental health professionals get together and talk about their mental health journeys and how they navigate mental wellness while working in the mental health field. Uh, today, I'm joined with someone whose work is very near and dear to the work that I do as a religious trauma therapist. I'm joined by Dr. Daryl Ray. Daryl, thanks for joining me today. Well, glad glad to be here. I hope I get some good therapy from you today. Is that is that what the deal is? Yeah, that's the deal. Okay. Um, no, you're you're uh, kind of one of the movers and shakers behind the Secular Therapy Project, uh, which I am on um, as a religious trauma therapist. So uh, I always like to kind of start with how you got where you're at. We're not going to go through your whole history, but starting with the Secular Therapy Project and recovering from religion, can you kind of fill people in who maybe are not familiar with, with those things or your work um, on where those things kind of came from? Sure, sure. Well, I started out, my own journey was uh, as a clinical psychologist for about 10 years, um, primarily working with families and juveniles. Um, then I moved into organizational psychology, did that for another almost 30 years, around 30 years. So I saw kind of other sides of the, of the world of, of psychology. But throughout that time, I saw a lot of need for, for a good therapy that um, was sensitive to the influences of religion on on our psychology and you know everything down to our brain chemistry actually so when i published my book in 2009 the god virus i i just got overwhelmed with people who read the book and then came to me and said i need help <laughs> yeah yeah i'm a psychologist but i uh, number one i i i'm no longer licensed i don't want to be licensed i don't want to do therapy anymore I, I want to do this. And uh, so I was constantly referring people to therapists that I knew, but I knew, you know, the universe of therapists that I personally can recommend is pretty tiny. Mm -hmm. And then in 2012, when I published um, my, my fourth book, actually, it's, it's uh, called Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. I got overwhelmed again with people saying, I need, I need a sex therapist. I need somebody who's not going to send me back to church for masturbating too much or telling me I'm a porn addict mm -hmm. and that sort of, of stuff. And that finally tripped the trigger. And I realized, dang, I, I got to get out and help these people. And I get on psychology today and look, or I get on the interwebs and look, and I could not find therapists that I could trust. I couldn't find a therapist. You could find a therapist. They look like they would be good from their web page, but just scratch a little bit below the surface and they got a, you know, a Jesus statement somewhere or a Buddhist statement somewhere, or even a, a Bible setting on a picture in their, you know, their office. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, I've got about 20 Bibles right back there, <laughs> <laughs> but they're all for, they're not for the thing that more usually is. It's more for my research and my books. But uh, so I don't want to I don't want to look like a hypocrite having lots of Bibles in my office. <laughs> but so that that led me to think, how can I connect people? <laughs> and here's that kind of a funny uh, twist to that, Jeremy. In the early 2000s, I got into online dating. Mm -hmm. I'd been married twice and decided that ain't for me anymore. I got along online dating. I, I became polyamorous and I still polyamorous, by the way. And I just thought there's. <laughs> It is hard to find a therapist who is uh, LGBTQ friendly, who's poly friendly, who's uh, religion, religious trauma, religious trauma friendly, or at least understands what it is. And quite frankly, uh, in 2010, when I was at a conference with Dr. Marlene Winnell, uh, who, 
the person who coined the term religious trauma, uh, she came up to me. We'd never met, but for the, we knew of each other's works. I liked her mm -hmm. book uh, and her work, Journey Free, and her book. Um, I'm drawing a blank on her book right now. We want Leave it, Leaving book. the Fold. Okay, Leaving the Fold, right. I loved her book. And so I meet her, and we're having a good chat. And he says, I got this new idea I'm thinking about. And she says, uh, I'm calling it religious trauma. And I'm going to tell you, Jeremy, the minute those words came out of her mouth, my whole brain just kind of flipped upside down and new wires started firing off. And I thought to myself, damn, that's what I've been seeing clinically for mm -hmm. decades, decades. I've been seeing people who are dealing with trauma that was directly related to their religious upbringing or current relationships, marriage, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It just, it just, it's like once you name something, sometimes it opens a whole new world. And that's what happened to me. And that's when I, and, and it was happening about the same time as I started thinking, I need to help people find therapists. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I, and, and I've been doing online dating, I thought, well, how do I, how does a, a therapist in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's an atheist, how do they advertise? Because they can't say I'm, I'm secular. I mean, the word secular is like Satan to yeah. somebody and no judge, no minister, you know, you're not going to get referrals. You're going to lose your whole practice. So the, the therapists are under real uh, danger for, for revealing who they are that, you know, they're not a Christian counselor, for example. And so, and, and then there's clients that need to feel safe and secure in contacting a therapist. So I said, we, I have to vet them. I have to start vetting and putting together a database. And I got, I think it was 24, 25 therapists that I personally knew. And I mm -hmm. talked them into joining the, so May 1st of 2012, I put those 25, 24 in there and started advertising saying, hey, if you're interested in joining this database, please do. And uh, for the first three uh, years or so, I, I did all the vetting just personally until yeah. I got a pretty good database of a, I think we had about 150 and then I turned it over to uh, Dr. Caleb Black, excuse me, and he ran it for about five years and got it up to about 600. And then uh, today is Dr. Travis McKee Vorst is our director. He's been the director for about four years and we just passed 800. We're at 805 therapists now in sure. nine different, nine different countries and 45 U.S. states. So. It's been a long, you know, long, I, I am, a, I don't give up easily. <laughs> I'm very sure. tenacious. <laughs> and when I know there's an idea that's worthwhile and worthy, I will, I will stick with it. And I'm usually pretty good at finding people like Dr. Lack or Dr. Travis uh, to, you know, to follow up and keep things running and uh, kind of keep work with them. So anyway, we are we have, we passed 33,650 clients registered on our on their website of second mm -hmm. therapy project all this data is just as of as of this week so it's it's been remarkable and the growth curve if if i get if i showed you the growth curve is just slowly but surely turning up which yeah. you know we're we're increasing speed because we're getting more people aware of what we're doing both on the client side and we, we pay for, uh, not a lot of money, we pay a little bit of money to get advertising out on Facebook and mm -hmm. Instagram places. So, so we're raising awareness. We're getting more donors. 
uh, and many of our therapists are, we ask our therapists, if you're a member of Psychotherapy Project and you're getting clients from us, please donate. I mean, because you're right. supporting. And so we're getting more therapists, you know, putting some bucks into it. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, grows. It It becomes self, self-sustaining, self I guess you could say. I, it was coming literally out of my pocket for the first three or four years. I was paying for everything. Yeah. But. I haven't had to do that in about seven or eight years. So I'm, I'm pretty happy that it's taken off on its own. Does that answer well, and, a little bit of your question? Yeah. And I think, uh, a lot of, uh, my, th- my, this podcast is geared towards therapists. So, um, yeah. as somebody who's on the directory, like the vetting process is actually pretty not intense. It's not time consuming, but like, it's not just check a box and say that you're secular. Like, it's an actual for client safety checking and making sure that people are practicing in a way that's aligned with a, a secular worldview. Yep. Absolutely. And I don't know of anybody else of any other persuasion that's doing something like this. I, I don't know who, who, who vets therapists. I, I don't, I've right. never heard of that before. So, Oh, I should, I should say that uh, I didn't tell the part about the um, uh, online dating you know, when you are on online dating, you you have anonymity between the two parties. Mm-hmm. And so when we designed the secular therapy project software, we designed it based upon like a match.com or, or an eHarmony sure. or fish, you know, plenty of fish. So you could you could interact with the therapist and that both would be anonymous until until they decided to do business together and then they could go outside of our system. Yeah, we've had a lot of people ask questions over the years. Well, what has anybody ever been outed? Are you afraid the clients will come in and out the therapist? And we've literally never had that happen. Never. So yeah, I mean, it, it could happen, but we do a lot to try and protect both both parties. I mean, we got clients they don't want their family knowing that they're seeing a secular therapist because they told them, "Yeah, well, go see a counselor that that's Christian." Or they don't right. want anybody to know it. So we have to protect both both sides. You know how it works, but but your yeah. viewers. That's why I'm saying all of that. Yeah, exactly. And and I do think um, you brought it up earlier, like that stigma still exists. Um, maybe not. I think the word secular is a little softer, but like still saying something like atheist, like for a lot of people, oh, that's yeah. a big turnoff. Yep. And the and the, the importance of what we do isn't just for Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, or Birmingham, Alabama. It also is for San Francisco because mm-hmm. you go, to, they may not be fundamentalists in, in California, but there's a whole lot of woo-woo bullshit. I mean, a whole lot of non-evidence-based therapeutic approaches that we try our best to keep that out. And the only problem we've ever had was we had, especially early on, it was back in about 2013 or 14, we had some applicants that we we did not vet as well as we should have. We were still learning. I mean, it Mm -hmm. wasn't like we should have known, but... And it turned out they had some real woo-woo, new age bullshit kind of stuff about three pages into their website. So we learned real quickly, you got to dig a little deeper than just the front page of their website. Yeah. And we don't take, we don't take your word for it. You, you got to provide us some evidence. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, people could still fool us, but we haven't, you know, we haven't had any problems with that. 
Yeah, and like I said, going through it, like the vetting, I, I emailed back and forth with someone who was checking my profile and they had some questions. I, I come from a strong Christian evangelical background, so it doesn't take long to find me at a, a Christian school where yeah, I was yeah, working yeah. or whatever. So they're like, hey, like just checking in on this and checking in on this. So like that vetting process is, again, I think with client safety in mind is, is really wonderful um, to yeah. make sure that because there are people who will say, oh, I'm Christian, but it doesn't affect my practice. And then they're praying with clients or they're, you know, <laughs> doing these things that are unsafe or triggering for clients. One of our, one of our, actually two, but one of our um, vetting team members, she's not on the team anymore. She resigned a couple of years ago, but she was actually from Liberty University. She had gotten a PhD. And I saw that on her application on her big red flags here. You know? yeah. We don't want a Liberty but it turned out she's an atheist now. So she had mm -hmm. gone through that whole. So in some ways, she has a much better understanding, you know, of what religious trauma might look like. Uh, but that was kind of funny. And since then, I'll bet we've had a half a dozen different therapists come to us, uh, mesmerian family or, you know, other kinds of specialties. And, and they graduated from Liberty or Regents University or Oral Roberts. But yep. if they could convince us, you know, that they're no longer in that persuasion, that that's a that's a big thing. <laughs> I will yeah. tell you a funny story early on. Well, not early on, but about five years ago, I had a Ph.D. psychologist uh, try to register. And um, he he was a graduate, got his Ph.D. at Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame. So obviously a very good school and mm -hmm. probably a very good Ph.D. program. And I said, but are you? But he was Catholic and he put it right in his application. He's Catholic. I said, well, OK, I'm, I'm not closed mind enough to throw. Yeah, but let me ask you a question. And uh, my only question was, you got a 21 year old woman that you've been seeing for three or four weeks. After that was set, third or fourth session, she comes in, says she just found out she's pregnant and she's going to go get an abortion tomorrow. And she wants some help dealing with the uh, anxiety and stress of walking through all those Christians that are going to harass her into the clinic. Mm -hmm. How would, how would you help her? <laughs> and I waited uh, two weeks and then I emailed him again. You know, what's your answer to this question? Cause I'm waiting yes. to see if I can approve you or not. And he finally, about three weeks after three weeks, he mailed and said, I couldn't help her. Okay. This is a fucking PhD and he can't keep his religion out of his practice. That yeah. that moment, I said, okay, we have to be even more diligent. We don't make it a requirement that you be an atheist, but you damn well better be close to it because I don't want anybody refusing service to a client because they're gay or because right. they're pregnant, because they want an abortion. There's a whole lot of shit that comes down when a mm -hmm. somebody when the when the therapist can't keep their own values out of the therapy session. Yeah. And, and while we're working with something like religious trauma, like that is unsafe for a client. And so we're re-traumatizing or we're creating new trauma for those clients who are seeking help and are vulnerable. And then someone's going to start a session off with a prayer or something like that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, it could be even more subtle than that. You know, here's, I've got a pet peeve. This is a great place to talk about it, actually, because I my pet peeve goes... Well, my pet peeve is that there's a lot of people that say they're spiritual, but not religious. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can deal with that when it comes to clients. I can't deal with it when it comes to a therapist. If they can't keep that spiritual bullshit, that supernatural notions out of their practice. So the bottom line for a therapist to get into second therapy project 
is you have to prove to us you do not hold supernatural beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And being new age, being spiritual but not religious, means you still think there's shit going on that you can't see, hear, or feel, or validate that's supernatural. It's outside of the realm of human senses. That mm -hmm. That is not appropriate. It shouldn't be appropriate in any therapy session. And I'm one of my my pet peeve is that there's a lot of people in the therapy field who really buy into this spiritual shit. Mm -hmm. How do you? And that re, that is a re-traumatizing thing, or it's taken people down another primrose path to trauma, and it doesn't help people deal with reality. You know, if if you say, well. You need to let the spirit of God lead you, or you need the spirit of Zeus lead you. I don't care. It's still it's still gobbledygook, and it's not going to help somebody deal with their depression mm -hmm. or their anxiety about losing their whole family if they leave the church, that sort of stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and you, you brought up the new age stuff. I mean, whether it's wellness or crystals or here's the supplement that you need to take, like, again, for people who are missing that meaning making that religion provided for them it's easy to get sucked in or pulled into some other cult adjacent behavior yeah yep and, and the worst thing is when the therapist is sucked into that cult yeah because there's a hell of a lot of therapists out there that'll tell you what supplements to take <laughs> right yeah I'm just saying don't go to yeah. your therapist to find out your supplements <laughs> there's a lot of overlap i think between some of that magical thinking in you know religion or evangelicalism which is what i was raised in and some yeah. of the uh wellness uh industry and the self-help industry yep my my mentor just to throw a little another detail in by mentor uh, in graduate school and later was, I, I off and on studied under him for quite a while, was uh, Albert Ellis. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Albert Ellis. Yeah, uh, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. Yeah, the godfather of what we now know as cognitive behavioral therapy. So uh, I learned rather early on from him how to be pretty tough in, in, in the way you analyze behavior and analyze your thought processes mm -hmm. and and when i see people being squishy and loosey-goosey about their terminology and their language i see someone who's going to confuse a client now if the client wants to be loosey-goosey and squishy and all that that's that's the client's issue but the therapist should have better language skills and better rational skills to understand what they're seeing hearing and feeling and not let their own supernatural bullshit get into it mm -hmm. i i know i come off as a hard ass probably harder than i really am but i, I get i just don't want people to be hurt and mm -hmm. if you're a therapist you should not be practicing shit that can hurt people and of course i don't think any therapist thinks they're hurting anybody i every therapist who practices new age bullshit thinks they're helping them i understand that's what they think mm -hmm. uh, the evidence just is not there though anyway yeah, well, I don't and know I, I think, want to go with that, but that's where I went. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that segues into talking about um, how some of these these things are like spiritual bypassing. It's it's avoiding doing the work, and yep. there's soothing. I'll put that in quotation marks. There's there's some version of soothing that happens, but it's not doing the work that needs to happen. So it's it's sidestepping some of the discomfort, whether it's say 10 Hail Marys or it's squeeze your favorite <laughs> crystal 
like right it's it's not addressing what the root cause of that symptom is right right and I, a skilled therapist uh, and i've watched some really skilled therapists in my career can take you or help you go where you want to go without they don't need this other they don't need crystals they don't need supernatural ideas because they have developed the skills that a good therapist should have in you know in understanding probably understanding or helping the other person understand what's going on in their own their own mind mm -hmm. uh, anyway so we're at, within within uh, our framework and we've only talked about secular therapy project i know but uh, that's secular therapy project just to make sure we've covered the all the bases is a sub program of recovery from religion and mm -hmm. uh, we have dozens of programs sex therapy is just one of the gigantic ones and and it's yeah. kind of self-funding and self-supporting but still it reports to the board of directors uh, yeah recovering from religion is uh my favorite resources tab for people who are deconstructing because it, it has so much information it's it's the best place to start in my opinion for if you're questioning or how do you deal with this topic um the resources page is fantastic but then write podcasts and videos and talks and all those things so just a ton of great free accessible resources for people right right and we don't charge a thing for any of our services everything we right. do is for free. our donors our donors supply the money for what we're doing yeah uh, let's talk about you being a hard ass. Um, <laughs> I think some of it, uh, uh, being familiar with uh, some of Albert Ellis's work, uh, I like to use kind of his, um, he wouldn't have termed it sarcastic, but almost uh, catastrophizing for a client, taking yep. taking their concerns to a ridiculous point where they realize yep. how silly it is. Yep. Um, I use that a lot in my work. But uh, the trope of kind of the angry atheist, uh, you know, you talk about not wanting people to be hurt and i think religion especially in america has such a privileged status that people assume oh well this person is a man of god so how could he be a bad person even though we know well there's all this data that says the most likely perpetrators of sexual abuse are pastors or priests <laughs> like yeah so it i don't think it's so much as at least professionally speaking it's being an angry atheist i think it's speaking out where there's injustice where there's still a, a system of oppression that's allowed to exist and almost hold a, a privileged status. Exactly. And and that's what I don't want to see among therapists because therapists are scared to challenge religion in the in the clinical setting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I I am okay with being careful. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being careful. And you, we're not trying to impose our values on them. But I'm also don't want to let don't want to uh, let people get away with shit. So they continue mm -hmm. to self uh, self uh sabotage themselves or undermine yeah. their own so if you play along and don't challenge them you're you're part of the problem mm -hmm. and you're you're taking people's money and and giving them you know and hurting them <laughs> potentially yeah so, yeah i'm all about do no harm and they're just i, I i'll tell you this one of the things i'm seeing a lot of right now and part of the reason sex therapy project is so important is there so many religious schools in the last 30 years have opened up their own marriage and family programs or counseling programs or psychology programs mm -hmm. and for example at the regents university where pat robertson's university it requires a phd level candidate to take one year of pat robertson theology 
Theologies that says God sends hurricanes to Orlando because of the gays. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have to take a year of that kind of theology to get your PhD, you're still licensable in probably all 50 states. What are you going to do with that? That is yeah. really, really bad training. It's poor training. And there's hundreds of colleges, universities that now have religiously based marriage and family counseling and, and clinical psychology and counseling psychology programs. Mm -hmm. And they're training people, how do you weave Jesus into your therapy? And, and don't call yourself a Christian counselor, but you can still be a counselor that follows Christ. I mean, yeah. I've heard that <laughs> and because they're getting wise to this Christian counseling notion that that's, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of clients that say, I need a counselor that's Christian. I, I don't want a secular counselor. Well, okay. But that means you're not getting a well-trained counselor <laughs> yeah. and well, you end up getting re-traumatized. And we, you know, the speaker of the house, his wife was a pastoral oh, counselor. Oh, so I know. Not licensed, not anything. I mean, her style of therapy was batshit crazy. I, I wrote <laughs> my longest blog post I've ever written was just like a point by point takedown of like why this is terrible. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's almost as the people leave church, the rise of the nuns, uh, as people like to call it, the, the non-religious, um, but the extremists, the evangelicals who are still in it are getting more and more extreme, like the Speaker of the House being in a covenant marriage. Like, that's so wild. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, and he never looks at porn, and if he does, his son knows about it. He sends it to his kid. <laughs> uh, well, and, you know, I think it's one of those things, too, with, like, journalism and, and you know, counteracting the angry atheist trope. I think as an activist is trying to take care of people and protect people from being harmed. We have to speak out about this stuff. Like a lot of people don't know how covenant eyes works where like, yeah, I've worked with people who are in accountability groups back when I was a Christian uh, mm -hmm. and I was progressive and liberal, but like still identified as a Christian. And like these accountability groups all fail together. One person yeah. looks at porn, they all get <laughs> notified and then they all do. Cause it's like, Oh, somebody slipped up. So here's our free pass. Like, like <laughs> clockwork that's how it works and so uh, like i think the media grabs something like covenant eyes like this is weird let's write about it but doesn't know enough about how it actually works to be like oh hey this is problematic that's like sending yeah. your 17 year old what porn you're watching like that's weird why are you yeah. in government you probably shouldn't be yeah well there's there's other iterations of that thing like that kind of thing like sex addiction groups mm -hmm. I, i've had i've had many people or or uh uh, gay, um, pray the gay away groups. Yeah, conversion camps. Conversion camps, or or just conversion groups that meet regularly. What I've had way too many people tell me that's where I got my dates. <laughs> right. Yeah. A place where people are trying to recover and then offer them more of what they're quote quote addicted. Well, hell yeah, you know you go to Alcoholics Anonymous group and pass the beer around. <laughs> yeah. Be hosting hosting AA at a bar instead of a church. Yeah. yeah, anyway, it's it's crazy. But there's a lot and and I think you're right. The anger atheist piece gets mislabeled. I I'm not I actually think there is such a thing as angry atheists. I think there are people that have not dealt with their own anger mm -hmm. around being deceived and lied to by the by whatever religion they came out of, whether it be Islam or Christianity or Buddhism, I don't care. They all are lying to you at some level and significantly lying to you. So to, to feel that anger, sense of betrayal is perfectly understandable. Mm -hmm. I just want to help, but, but on the other side of that coin, you need to get over that anger 
sooner or later because you're wasting a lot of your valuable life and energy on something that's not going to go anywhere. And you're not going to convert or deconvert anybody with that kind of anger and behavior. In fact, it actually usually drives people back into religion. You know, I don't want to be around Daryl because he's an angry atheist. So I don't, I'm not here as an angry atheist. I'm here as a person who's angry about what religion does to people and how therapists shouldn't be hurting people more because of they aren't taking their own journey seriously and their own skill set uh, development seriously. Uh, Daryl, far be it for me to call someone old, but you have uh, been in the field longer than I have. Uh, you know, Marlene Whitnell's uh, Leaving the Fold came out in 1994. That's almost 30 years ago. W what are some of the changes that you've seen uh, in the field, even the concept of like religious trauma being introduced, but um, the rise of like sex education and online, you know, some of these, these things are more accessible to people. How have you kind of seen that shift uh, within the field of people working with religious trauma? Well, I have, uh, and you can call me old. I'm 39 and holding. That's, that's where I come. <laughs> hey, you're four years older than me. <laughs> um, I have seen, I, I'm, I'm privileged in the sense I've, I've seen the development of therapy and psychology and, and the clinical work over, you know, I, I got into clinical my first exposure was after I after I left seminary. I got a job as uh, as a counselor in a juvenile facility, mm -hmm. and as a result of being in that facility for a few months, I realized, well, I kind of like this counseling stuff. So that's when I went to back to Peabody Vanderbilt and uh, and started working on my doctorate in in counseling psych. But so I, I, that was real early. That was 1974 that I, I started there. So I've seen everything up until today. Mm -hmm. and what I can say is in the 1970s and through the 80s, this religious bullshit was not in the clinical setting. I didn't hear, I never heard the term Christian counselor. That was, the, no, I never heard that term. I never knew a therapist that thought it was appropriate to pray with a client. I, I mean, it just was mind boggling now to see this happening. So yes, there's been a huge shift, but it's away from science-based clinical practices, or at least peer reviewed, potentially scientifically validated. I'm not saying every theory that comes out of uh, current psychology is is gobbledygook because you know at one point in time cognitive therapy was gobbledygook too and mm -hmm. you know it just takes time for new theories to be proven or disproven it's just the way science works right so these folks are i mean the folks that are i'm seeing come out are now are now being educated in schools that didn't exist when i was around mm -hmm. i was going to vanderbilt i was getting a doctorate from one of the best schools period i mean i really valued what i got there but right across, well, not across, a couple of miles away is Belmont College, which is a conservative Baptist university. And they've now got a PhD that did not exist when I was around. Sure. And there's all sorts of Christian bullshit. You cannot be a gay professor at Belmont. Now, I will just say there are gay professors there. <laughs> they just right. keep real quiet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there was a, a gay uh, 
coach, a, a lesbian coach of a national champion team. They fired her because she came out as lesbian. Mm -hmm. So what kind of training are you giving people? And what kind of now? And, and you're getting that from those kind of universities. And, and that didn't exist when I was around. Now, you know, places like Regents University is a fairly new university, too. They didn't have a Ph.D. program, but they do now. Yeah. And there was a woman on a local radio show here that uh, Ph.D. from from Pat Robertson's university. And she was on the show in Kansas City touting her new book on the horrors of sex addiction and how you keep your children out of Internet porn and all this sort of bullshit. And they were treating her like she had some amazing valid, valid scientific research behind it. Mm -hmm. And there is zilch and zero. I called into the, I called into the um, show. I, I, I heard, I saw it. I called into the show. I was listening as I was driving around. And I called in and I asked him, I, I told him what I wanted to talk about. I stayed on that show for, that was show lasted an hour. I was on that show for 45 minutes. And they never answered. They never let me ask my question. In the yeah. meantime, there was a dozen other people that got their questions in there, but I never got mine in. So I wrote a really nice long letter to the, you know, general manager of the radio program saying, why are you touting this pseudoscience bullshit and all that? Uh, I would like to be on there to refute what she said. They never responded to my letter, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's if that's an angry atheist, then I'm an angry atheist. There. Well, so interesting. Uh, you know, that's why I brought up the historical perspective because thinking like pre-Reagan, um, how things maybe looked, whereas like I grew up in the 90s and so I've seen um, a response, a negative response to some of the religion. Most people who are in my age range are, you know, we know people who are deconstructing or have already deconstructed. Like the elder millennials have left church in droves. So like, it's fascinating to kind of look at that right if you think 60s and 70s it was science and then the religious right started kind of implementing this long-term plan to shift some of these things and normalize yep. religion homeschools and and some of these things as being um with with no uh supervision is the word i want to use but uh with no accountability built into it yeah right right so um, I'm sure some of your viewers are from one or more of those schools. And just because you're from one of those schools doesn't mean you're a bad therapist. I don't want to right. leave that paste in your mouth. Um, it means you've probably got a lot of extra work to do because you were taught some crazy shit while you were at Regents University or Oral Roberts yeah. or Fox. Or Here's the worst one. One of the worst in the nation is Brigham Young. Brigham Young University makes people at any level any student before you go into Brigham, you have to sign you know sign a waiver that says i will not masturbate i will not look at porn i will not have sex outside of America. you know all the things that i had done by the time i was 18. <laughs> right and more and these people are going in there with that kind of an attitude and education and then they're leaving to go out and do things for example there's these um these uh, gay you know, conversion ranches out in out in Utah that are being run by master's level graduates of Brigham Young University. Mm -hmm. And they they're charging insurance companies for children that are being sent from Massachusetts, from Alabama to these camps. And they're they're claiming that the children are, you know, being treated for depression to the insurance company but then they're telling the parent but we will treat their sex addiction right so you got a 
12, 13-year-old kid whose mom caught him masturbating or caught him with a Playboy magazine, and now they're sending him off to get, you know, sex addiction. What? Why? How would you? That's just mind-boggling. A 13-year-old cannot be a sex addict. And nobody is, by the way, but certainly not a 13-year-old. And so we've got insurance companies that were buying into that. Now, in the last few years, they've gotten wise to this, and they're starting to ask more questions. Mm -hmm. So the insurance aren't paying for this uh, so-called depression that's really diagnosed as sex addiction, and there's no such diagnosis, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's still there. And those camps haven't gone bankrupt. The parents are just having to pay more out of their own pocket. Well, right. still wrong. And it's how does it? damage these boys and it's largely boys there are girls that go there but it's almost all boys and they're being supervised by men who think you can't masturbate of course they did not masturbate them sore themselves that morning before they went to tell the boys they can't masturbate right it's just it's just horrible now mm-hmm. where so that's pet peeve number two here and that is the american counseling association American Psychological Association, but especially the American Counseling Association, is overlooking these egregious things that are going on. These people mm-hmm. are, Brigham Young University, at least last I checked, was still, their programs were still accredited by the American Counseling Association. Yeah. Nobody is saying, look, you, where's the American Counseling Association when a, when a therapist brings the Bible out in in their clinical setting. Mm-hmm. Where's that counseling association when those kids are being virtually tortured at a camp by accredited counselors from Brigham Young University? That mm-hmm. is pissing me off more than almost anything else. Because those kids are huge victims of a system that's religiously motivated. Yeah. Well, and that's then the onus, the onus is on those kids or clients who have a, a therapist who's practicing unethically to file a report and like that may or may not happen. I, I, in this day and age, I very rarely see clients or I very rarely see therapists lose their license. They get put on probation, but like there aren't enough therapists. So the, these accreditation boards aren't pulling licenses. So the abuse happens and they either lose their accreditation and stay open and right charge out of pocket or like the mm-hmm. abuse keeps going on. And we get news stories of horrific abuse at christian day program training like you know <laughs> how many of those need to happen before yeah. you know we as a society say like right this is harming people and the the boards themselves and of course every state has its own board of some kind whether it's the licensing board or the health board or whatever and far too many of those people are deeply religious themselves right and they're very hesitant to clamp down abuse of religious privilege within uh, some clinical setting. Yeah. So there are just no checks and balances here to stop Christianity. And it just got worse. I know you didn't see the 60s and 70s. I did. But through the 90s and early 2000s, I saw this growth, incredible growth of purity culture, of course, Mm -hmm. which feeds right into it because how many counselors believe that, you know, some forms of sexual expression are ungodly right and and they're there to help discourage kids who think they're gay or might be trans or something like that yeah and we've gone down a hell of a rabbit hole here well i think even with purity culture you know i want to pick your brain a little bit on uh i think 
a lot of people are aware how purity culture hold uh, harms women because it's so steep in patriarchy. But as a male therapist, I see a lot of guys who are coming out of purity culture, and it's been ju- maybe not just as it's not a competition, but it has also been harmful for yeah, the guys who are right. raised in it. Yeah, that reminds me. I wrote an article about five or six years ago called uh, "Male Shame" and the other side of the coin to female shame, and I explore that very thing that. Purity culture hurt women a lot, but let's look at how it's perpetuated and how men were hurt by it as well. You, you might be interested in that article. Um, just male shame. If you Google male shame and Daryl Ray, it'll probably come up. It's in our resources too, if you do male shame yeah. within, within our resources. But the thesis is men were hurt by purity culture in invisible ways, in ways that aren't ob- as obvious. I mean, with purity culture in the 90s, you could see girls being forced to go to a ball with their father and wear a purity ring and dance with their father in a wet, what appeared to be a wedding dress, you know, and, and sign pledges and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. But boys were being taught some crazy stuff, too, you know, about what's the role of, of women. You know, the women are supposed to be ultimately subservient to men mm-hmm. and looking at porn will ruin your marriage. I mean, there's a whole set of beliefs and ideas that boys were getting. The girls didn't get as much or as a whole different set of, of guidelines and ideas. And mm-hmm. both sides are just useless, but they're yeah. harmful. They're more than worse than use. They're harmful. And I think that article, I think there's a lot to be said, uh, Jeremy, for the male side of all this. Because I don't think that's been paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Because it's so obvious how bad the problems are on on the women's side, but it's it's just as as it's invisible, I, I guess you could say. And so the reason I I think this is important is I see so many men coming to us that recover from religion. But, well, let me give you an example. We about a year and a half ago we started started a women only group, and it's a virtual group, and. Mm-hmm. Within within weeks after starting this group, it's an online group facilitated by one of our trained volunteers, not by a therapist. It's not group therapy. It's peer support. And we were getting 25, 30 women showing up to every meeting. And we were having to get extra facilitators in to be able to break the group up. Women were joining us from three or four countries, from Japan, from Australia, from California, all in the same meeting. And we could see a real need for women to talk about this stuff away from the ears of men, which mm-hmm. I fully understand, I fully support. So we've had this meeting going for a year, year and a half. Uh, about three months ago, one of our volunteers said, why don't we have a men's meeting? You know, what's going on here? Why are, why don't we have a men's? And I, we, we de- debated and discussed it for a while. I said, well, let's give it a try. See if there's any market, I guess you could say out there for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we announced it, got, got it going. I think there were three or four guys showed up the first meeting. Second meeting, we had 17 guys show up. Yeah. Now, our, la- our, our next meeting was like two days ago. I haven't heard how many showed up. But, boy, there is a market there. And I'm not talking in capitalistic terms. I, a need. There's a need there. It's more probably right. a better term for it. And what these guys are talking about, this purity stuff really, really affected their ability to communicate with women, mm-hmm. to understand what the dating world is to accept rejection or how to approach a woman without seeming like a creepy predator, you know, there's, and women were taught what men, that men are 
fundamentally predators. So women are coming at men from from an angle that is puzzling to the men. I I haven't even kissed a woman yet. How can I be a predator? You know, right? Uh, and this, you know, I, I I'm I think there's a whole area to be explored now on the male side. I think yeah. we've opened up a can of worms on the female side, and that can of worms is starting to we're starting to understand it better. But I think there's a lot more, and that's why I wrote that article on male shame, because men have a lot of shame, mm-hmm. and uh, the religion itself teaches this. The the most obvious example uh, is honor killings, in whether Pakistan or there was an honor killing in Toronto, you know, or or Saudi Arabia. Well, an honor killing is just an expression of male shame. If you if you're female, if you are supposed to kill, uh, you are supposed to control your females whether that's your sister, your wife, your daughter, you're supposed to control them if you're a man. If they don't abide by your patriarchal rules, then that gives you the right that then you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And if it reflect and it reflects directly on you as a man, as a male. So now I feel shame. My my daughter has shamed me by kissing a boy without being married to him. So now I have to go kill her. Because the actual murder, act of murder is a direct result of my shame about not being able to control my women. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds, we all could agree, that's heinous and incredibly uncivilized and psychologically obviously damaging to everybody. But where did the guy learn the shame? He learned it from Islam. Purity culture does the same thing. We just don't go so far with it. How many families have kicked their own child out of the house because their their daughter was having sex, you know, outside of marriage, mm-hmm. or that they have a gay child, and, and they disown their own children because of male shame. You have brought shame upon our family as a as a Mormon in in Utah. The girl goes out, has sex after the prom, dad finds out. You have brought shame upon our family, and so there's male shame is now going to be expressed in the form of some kind of punishment for the females that's how male shame works and there's a lot more mm-hmm. to it of course but if i have you i've never heard anybody talking about it from this angle maybe i'm wrong have you heard anybody talking about it no um i i tried to run a group i tried to run a, a purity culture group for men uh with a, a therapist i know and uh we had i think two guys sign up for it um mm-hmm. so but every therapist we talk to who works in religious harm or uh, sex educators that I work with, like, this is needed, this is needed, this is needed. But you're, I think you're talking about the shame piece of it is so limiting for guys to admit yep. that they have sexual problems or that they were harmed by purity culture. I think, you know, because there's this uh, guilt around, like, but but I'm privileged. Like, as a male, there's that yeah. awareness of <laughs> your privilege, but also, like, how can it be true that there's privilege there and it's still harming you? Yeah, I think this notion of privilege needs to, it's its too much like a sledgehammer. There's just not enough nuance, nuance. there. Yeah. If you are the top 10%, yeah, top 1%, yeah, you're, you're clearly privileged. I mean, the richest person in a group or the best looking person in a group, privileged. But the rest, the rest of the population falls below that. And they can be as much victims of this system as 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 anybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, men are men are victimized by purity culture 
as much as women are victimized by purity culture. You can't separate. They're part of a system. And you can't right. separate them. And when you try to separate them, you do injustice to both sides, I think. Yeah. So I think and the fact that, for example, when I was going to school up and through the up through the 80s and then that changed sex education was it was always terrible but it was at least it was better than what it is now and we mm -hmm. actually had sex education and they actually told us about condoms in the school i went to and 10 years later that would have gotten a teacher or, or whoever's teaching it fired for telling mm -hmm. the kid about condom and it was in 1995 that Dr. Jocelyn Elders got fired as a Surgeon General because she talked about masturbation as a normal thing. I don't, are you old enough to remember that under the Clinton uh, administration? I would have been seven, so probably oh, not. <laughs> but like, you yes. know, growing up, hearing about like, you know, the all the innuendos around uh, getting a blowjob in the White, white, uh, the white House. Like, <laughs> yeah. I grew up in purity culture, so even like, my parents would turn the news off like that was so taboo to even know those things existed and again yeah. I, I as a therapist now i see guys struggling with like lack of education like it's haha -ha funny in society to make fun of guys who don't know where the clit is but like for people who are raised in purity culture like they're not taught anatomy they're not taught yep. that pleasure is a part of uh intercourse and so like it is one of those things where, right, you can be in a privileged status and be victimized. Like those things are not mutually exclusive. They can exactly. be both through at the same time. Yeah. Well, and then there's then there's the whole issue of whether you're religious or not, whether you're raised religious or not, you still live in a religious culture that has crazy religious ideas. I call this the Oprah effect. I mean, Oprah Winfrey gets on the tel on, you know on, on her show and starts talking about sex addiction or start talking about porn addiction and suddenly it's a thing mm -hmm. in 1983 dr patrick carnes wrote the first book on sex addiction and he's made a cottage industry out of that ever since i think he's like published five books on sex addiction how can you publish five books on something that you can't even agree has got a diagnostic criteria but he's done it and mm -hmm. the, he's he's a darling of the religious right you know he, they dr james dobson all those people love Carnes, even though he says what he says is not quote religiously based mm -hmm. he will say that i've seen him say it but if you look at the damn test he gives people to identify if you're a sex addict it's almost i i, I do i do a talk on on the myth of sex addiction and right. i give every i did there were 500 people in this uh at the free thought conference in tulsa oklahoma about five years ago i handed a copy of his test out to everybody i said please take this test and at at, at everybody did it and then as, as i got started on my talk i said stand up if you're a sex addict according to this test and about 80 percent of the people stood up <laughs> it was <Right>. crazy <laughs> so if a test can't discriminate between or discern you know between people have real problems and people have fantasy problems uh Carnes is just a fantasist. He's created a whole cottage industry. And there, and whether he was religious or not, religion has jumped onto that. And Oprah Winfrey mm -hmm. has jumped onto that. Churches love it because now they can have, like they have an AA meeting every week in the basement of their church. They can have a sex addiction anonymous meeting in their church too, run yeah. by a probably a well-trained sexual predator. Who knows? It's, yeah. 
Yeah. We well, and every, every man's battle, like, you know, we talk about covenant eyes, every man's battle, oh, yeah. like these, these books, these programs, these things that are capitalistic in nature are making money off of these religious groups. And yeah, based on, yeah. on no science, evangelical, which is what I was raised in, so I can criticize it freely. Uh, like, you know, the belief is in your heart. And so like, there is no need for science or logic, which is how they've been <laughs> kind of co-opted by um, Trumpism and all of that stuff where, where there is no critical thinking because critical thinking is uh, anathema to believe it in your heart. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, well, so, so yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. If you had a segue. Oh, I didn't really have a segue. I just, gosh, I didn't plan on talking about this today, but I'm glad we did because I think it's important for therapists to start. I think, I think many therapists, how do I, how do I couch this diplomatically? I think therapists have to continually work on how they're being influenced by the culture around them mm -hmm. and be aware that the media influences therapists just like it influences everybody else. I have heard too many therapists buy into this re religious notion of sex addiction or porn addiction. And when they buy into it, that's the culture influencing them. They're not doing it because of the science because there is no science there. In addition, they are misdiagnosing the person who is simply using sex or porn to deal with other lower lying issues, you know, whether that's, mm. you know, there's any number of things they could be dealing with, least of which is probably depression, not the least of which is probably depression, but a therapist who doesn't, it's, it's lazy, it's being a lazy therapist is what it is to, to accept some of the stuff that's coming into us from the culture. And our clients are bringing it in too. The client will come in and says, I think I'm a sex addict. Right. Well, you need to help the client understand the research shows the most high, highest likely of you being a sex addict is if you're from a religion <laughs> that says right. you're a sex addict. It's not the science that's doing that for you. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I yeah. could I go on my high horse. I'm not sitting in the clinical. I'm not sitting in the office listening to the psychiatrists or psychologists or whoever. I'm just seeing the results. I'm having people come to us mm -hmm. and saying my last two therapists agreed that I was a sex addict. Okay, right. well, wait a minute. <laughs> what kind of therapy is that? And why are they, and, yep. and they came to the secular therapy project and I said, look, anybody in the secular therapy project, I won't guarantee it, but I'll put a 99% down that they will not agree that you're a sex addict and they won't treat you as a sex addict. And if right. I find out they did, we're gonna get rid of them real quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the research, I mean, this was a recent study that just reaffirmed that uh, pornography usage only causes problems for people who are from a religious background who think that it causes problems. Like, <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with the usage itself. It has to do with your belief system attached to it. Exactly. Um, and I know studying porn in, in academia is, is difficult to get good uh, scientific research because there's no control group because more than 95% of people watch porn. So it's just, it's so difficult. <laughs> so you have these, you have this vacuum that these Christian publishing houses come in with their pseudoscience and publish stories. And, and there's yeah. no, I don't want to say there's no counterbalance, but like, I know it's, it's difficult to study because you don't have a control group group because of how ubiquitous porn use is. Yeah. Yeah, and then the fact that 
porn use is highest among the most religious zip codes in the United States. That, that's another issue that's kind of yeah. funny. Utah and Mississippi are number one and number two in porn use. Right. And you see those uh, occasionally those maps. I don't know how scientifically validated they are, but like the most searched terms on Pornhub for each state and, and those types of things. Well, they are valid. Uh, and there's been other things. There's uh, There was a book published about um, about 10 years ago, maybe even more, called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Uh, I think it was two social psychologists out of Stanford, I think. They, they were just looking at IP addresses and where the porn searches were coming from. And th yeah. they've they validated, and then Pornhub started doing that later. Pornhub simply mm -hmm. validating what these acad ac academicians uh, already found. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, it's it's getting, it's old but not dated. I'll just say this. I did some research uh, about 10 years ago called Sex and Secularism. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's available free. The, the it's a PDF. You can get it online. I can even send it to you if you want. But we looked at 14,590 uh, uh, respondents uh, that we found on the internet. We just put this survey up and asked people to take the survey. And uh, only people we were interested in were uh, people who are not religious. We mm -hmm. only wanted non-religious people. So we excluded anybody who currently identifies themselves as religious. And some some identified as agnostic, some as atheist, some as you know spiritual but not religious. I don't know. But they're if they were if they were religious, they were eliminated. And out of that, we found some fascinating results uh, from from this. And one of the things we found was men and women watch just about the same amount of porn, mm -hmm. and men and women start sex uh, within three to six months of of you know 16 17 years of age regardless of whether they were in purity culture training or not yeah that what we found was the same thing the u.s government found in its its research that you can take a absence only or purity culture course and it will delay the onset of intercourse by about three to six months but you still start having intercourse you start having sex yeah. and that looking at porn same thing uh purity culture kids start looking at porn about three months later than non-purity culture it doesn't slow it doesn't stop them it just slows them down a little bit yeah uh, and makes it less safe we know unplanned pregnancies and oh yeah the unplanned uh, pregnancy bit, not teaching about birth control saying abortion is you know all bad and all that sort of stuff yeah so yeah go look that up or or let me send you a link to it because it, the research like i said it's it's old, but it's not dated. There, the, yeah. Everything we found, we, we did a follow-up survey about five years later, and our results were almost identical. It was a totally different set of people. Mm -hmm. So we know that what we found was solid. And the reason I'm recommending it is because it's secular-focused. And your clients, yeah. your, your therapists are getting secular clients, and our data will help you understand what secular people are thinking and mm -hmm. how they're... Because about... Uh, 60% of all the people on our survey had been religious or were re raised religious like like you were but are now secular right. and the other 30 40% were raised secular so what we did is we took those two groups and we compared them and it's really interesting comparison group cuz the religious group were still religious at 13 14 15 years of age mm -hmm. the secular group were secular at 13 14 15 
So we simply asked, you know, when did you start looking at porn for both groups? When did you start having sex for the first time? When did you masturbate for the first time? And we could see that there was almost no difference between these two groups. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great, um, uh, great way to compare them. Almost as if it's a natural process and has nothing oh, to do with it. <laughs> almost as if there are hormones flowing or something. <laughs> uh, hey, how are we doing for time, Daryl? Do you have a, a couple more minutes? Yeah, a couple more minutes that I probably need to get going. Okay. Um, I'm, not, I'm it, not in a huge hurry, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things I just wanted to touch base on, uh, because you're openly polyamorous, um, and it's one of those things that I, I see a lot in the, the deconstruction community. I, I think it's joked about, but there's some reality to people who kind of deconstruct their religion often will then deconstruct the concept of monogamy. Um, and I'm just curious if, if again, it's one of those things you've kind of seen culturally shift, if there have been ebbs and flows for the, the uh, stigma attached to that and kind of where you feel like the field's at right now. Oh, gosh, we could do a whole program on that. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I saved it for the end. <laughs> well, I got divorced in 1980, uh, uh, early 88. We separated in 87. Uh, I'd been married for 17 years. And within a few months, I had a very close friend. We're still really close friends. Uh, Dr. Dan Dana uh, moved in with me because he had just gone through a divorce, too. And Dan is a avid reader, as am I, and he said, hey, you might want to look at this book called Loving More by Dr. Deborah Annapole. I read it, and it was the first book ever published, I believe it was the first book ever published on polyamory. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, this is interesting. And so I was exposed to the notion of polyamory uh, in the late 80s, um, and through the 90s, I didn't uh, – I, I, I realized I probably should be poly, but the culture wasn't there yet, and neither were the dating sites. You couldn't put polyamorous on the plenty of fish dating site. <laughs> sure. Well, it didn't yeah. it didn't exist actually. So I went ahead and went through uh, the monogamy phase again with a second wife, which is a stupid mistake. And then uh, by nineteen uh, by uh, 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 two thousand one, uh, that that marriage ended. I was only married three years. And that marriage ended, I realized, okay, this is dumb. Why am I staying monogamous? It's not me. And so I openly started practicing polyamory. And by that time, some of the uh, websites were more poly-friendly to it. And some articles were coming out. Of course, The Ethical Slut was, it was written about 1980, uh, 1996 or seven, yeah. I think. And of course, I read that. And I just think this is, this is really an important concept because... Here's the deal. People have been polyamorous since Adam and Eve. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because I think Steve may have been in there too, or Lilith, Lilith or was Lilith. in there too. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> so why are we why are we being dishonest? And what is monogamy anyway but a religious concept? So yeah. I started deconstructing my own monogamy. Why did I feel compelled? And why did my partners, for example, feel compelled? And how do we work through this? And oftentimes work through it together. Mm -hmm. And so I started just advertising, hey, I'm out in the dating world. I'm happy to you know, get a partner or two, but I'm not going to be monogamous. If that's not good enough for you, then let's keep walking, keep going. Yeah. And I was surprised at the number of women that were open to that. I mean, mm -hmm. genuinely open to that. Now, at that point in time, I was 51 years old. So 
and I'm and I'm meeting women that are of the same age range. You know, within ten years of that, I, yeah. I dated both women that were five, six, seven years older than me, and went, well, actually, I dated one who was fourteen years older than me, and another woman that was uh, ten years older, ten years younger than me. So I, you know, I, the whole spread. It wasn't an age thing. I mean, I know this fantasy some men have. You know, marrying the twenty-five-year-old. That that was never one of my fantasies. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that age. That, that <laughs> when I was 25, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And I still, <laughs> so I've seen Polly really open up a lot. You, I mean, mm -hmm. when you see HuffPost putting regular articles up on polyamory, or you see a Wall Street, not a Wall Street Journal, um, a, a Washington Post article on polyamory, and you see regular columnists now talking about polyamory, and you see women talking about deconstructing their own monogamy. I want to turn you on. Uh, a good friend of mine, Gail, uh, uh, Glenda Jordan, just did a talk two weeks ago, and it'll be on the RFRX. She did it on RFRX two weeks ago. And it was her story and philosophy deconstructing her monogamy. And she's been uh, polyamorous for about 10 years now with, with her nesting partner. But she's got two other partners. Um, anyway, she, she, I'll just tell you, Jeremy, she gave the most amazing talk. I have never seen a better talk on polyamory in my life. I don't think I could have given a talk near as good as she did. Sure. But here's the interesting thing about the polyamory world. It's led by women. It is not a male fantasy. It is a, it's a women's movement. And if you look at them, all the main books written about polyamory are written by women, mm -hmm. starting with Deborah Annapol and with um, uh, The Ethical Slut by Hardy, um, Janet Hardy and um, Dosa Easton. It, almost all the books are by women. Mm -hmm. That alone says something about where the culture is going and who's leading this. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Jessica Fern wrote Polysecure, which is um, a little bit more current than Ethical Slut, but in that same kind oh, of yeah. Oh, yeah. line. No, of, I'm not. Uh, I'm not Ethical Slut's not up to date. I No, they do have right. an up-to-date uh, revised version, I guess. But. Yes, correct. But yeah, no, uh, that'd, be, that'd be great to link to that talk when it, when it gets posted. We'll definitely have that in the show notes. Yeah. I, I oh, this has been years ago. I started... Uh, seeing this one woman, or uh, we were, we we communicated, I think through plenty of fish or something like that, and uh, we met for coffee one day, and as we're meeting for coffee, um, I'm telling her I'm polyamorous. You know, here's what that means. She'd never even heard of the term, mm -hmm. and she listens very. She was a very thoughtful person. She listened carefully and had some good questions, and then at the end, she says, "I don't think I do that." And her words were, "I don't share." So, okay, that's fine. So we went our separate ways. About a week later, I get a call from her and she wants to see me again. Okay, well, okay. Well, <laughs> you know the story. <laughs> we dated for uh, uh, seven or eight years after that. Mm -hmm. And and the second time we met, it was really kind of funny. The second time we met, she said, okay, I have a confession to make. I, I do have a boyfriend on the side. <laughs> <laughs> And she had had a boyfriend on the side for her whole adult life, practically, even when she was married. 
yeah. she just had never owned up to it. So she was poly, but unethically uh, non-monogamous, yeah. if you will. And that was, it was, a, it was funny. We both have, we still were still good friends today, although we're not involved anymore, but it was, a, it was funny and we had a great laugh about it. But I think there's a lot of people out there like that. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. And uh, the fact that women are leading this tells me that women, of course, we have a lot of evidence that women have not been honest about their sexual past. And for good reason, because our culture shames women for being sluts, you know, and, and promiscuous and all that, even though men are equally. So right. but I think once a woman owns her sexuality and says, it's my sexuality, and I'll give a fuck what you think. And if you can't deal with it, that's your problem, not mine. Then they're free to be monogamous or polyamorous if they want to mm -hmm. be. I don't even like the word monogamous, by the way. I, I try to get rid of that word. I think exclusive is a better term sure. because... Uh, monogamy is one sex partner for life. For life, yeah. That's what right. that's what Jesus defined it to be. And I don't <laughs> quote Jesus very often, but so if you haven't, if you've had more than one sex partner, then you are not monogamous by definition. Right. So I prefer exclusive. So if you want to be exclusive for fifty years, go for it. But you're not monogamous because you had right. you had a boyfriend before you dated your husband or whatever or girlfriend. Right. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. So we went down that rabbit hole. I could go yeah. way down that rabbit hole. That was great. Well, and I, I knew that talk had been scheduled. I wasn't able to attend. So it'll be awesome when it gets posted. And and like I said, we'll link to the show notes. Um, tons of great resources, Daryl. I'll, I'll link to your book. And Recovering from Religion, like I said, is something I share with clients constantly. It's, it's on my tabs because of how often I copy and paste it, send it to people. <laughs> so we'll have lots of links in the, in the show notes. So thanks so much for, for taking the time yep. um, and, and taking the time to talk today. Sure. I hope your uh, I hope your folks will go look at my books, God Virus and Sex and God. I think yeah, they'll well, have a lot to say about what you do in the in the clinical office. Yeah, for sure, and we'll link to all that stuff. So, okay. um, thanks thanks for taking the time today, and to all our lovely listeners out there, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another new episode.